Spunk is a classic because of the soaring language and the look inside a beautiful Black community in the 1930s. Spunk is a classic because it feels like such an authentic portrait of this particular community and not enough of those authentic portraits exist. This is our history. This is our legacy. Hello, and welcome to This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon Theater Podcast. We're your hosts, Sky Pagan, curator and member of the Hedgepig Ensemble. And me, Mary Candler, Artistic Director of Hedgepig Ensemble Theater and a curator of Expand the Canon. And we're here to introduce you to some plays by women that are classics. Expand the Canon is a program of Hedgepig Ensemble, a Brooklyn-based company dedicated to reimagining the classics, creating a legacy of storytelling with gender equity at its core. So Spunk by Zora Neale Hurston. The one and only. The one and only. The truly unique and unmatched Zora Neale Hurston. This play is a classic. Why is it not on stages all the time, y'all? It truly is. I remember reading this play for the first time, and it just, it's so, like, magical without without being literally magical like the atmosphere is just so lovely and specific and evocative and colorful and joyful even though there's like it's dealing with some heavy themes obviously but it still manages to feel light and loving and gentle I totally agree and I find that it's so interesting because it's not like you know we'll talk a little bit about the plot summary but it's not like it's all you know roses and daisies like a lot of stuff goes down in this play but it is in this atmosphere and that's just like the word for this play to me is like it's just so atmospheric I feel Mm -hmm. suddenly like I'm in like a lush Florida setting and I'm just in this community this um, particularly specific black community in Florida and I get to feel and like understand that world in a way that doesn't normally touch my life yeah I mean it, it really it really feels like almost like a love letter to this very specific place and time and group of people and it's just such a wonderful portrait and it feels so authentic and so lovingly drawn Um, You can't help but like fall in love with these characters and feel like you know them. Even the minor characters in this play are wonderful. I would love, love, love to see what a design team would do to this, you know? I have so many images in my brain of like, you know, you walk into the theater and especially like we're here in New York, but you know, you might be anywhere. Like we come off of this cement urine stained street and to walk into a theater that was like lush and like humid and Mm. I just would love to see that like world that could transport us so far away and like in that too you know Zora Neale Hurston is an anthropologist she is looking Uh at language in a way that is so um a accurate but b beautiful and it's like just full and lyrical and it all kind of works together to bring this vibe of just I don't know joy to this play yeah I mean she has 
such a specific style of like when I think Zora Neale Hurston, I think of that very sort of naturally rooted, like lots of nature imagery, lots of folkloric tendrils sticking into the story. It just feels almost like a fairy tale, even when it also feels so hyper-realistic and so rooted in reality that it's, it's just lovely. And yeah, I love what you said about the setting too, because it's like this play has so much opportunity for just spectacle and color in the most beautiful way of like there's all these parties and there are all these games and music and it feels like you know this absolutely the kind of show you go to and are utterly transported by the setting and like completely forget you're in a theater and we haven't even mentioned the music yet you know Mm -hmm. music is a huge part of the heart of this and it's all music that really it's music that has been passed down for generations and generations and generations. So yes, you absolutely need a music director who is familiar with kind of an African-American tradition. It's blues music. It is, it's, and again, it helps transport you to another place. But the music is just at the heart of this. You can go on the Library of Congress site and listen to Zora Neale Hurston singing from some of these chant songs, singing. I didn't know that. Yes. I guess that um, came up when we were actually producing the reading of, you know, we were going down rabbit holes because, you know, I don't know very much about the music of this time period. So I had to do a lot of research and in the Library of Congress, you can actually hear her voice singing some mm. of these songs. And it is just part of her work of capturing language and music from this time period. It's really awesome. This, we should say this is part of the reading we did in collaboration with the Classical Theater of Harlem in the fall of 2020 uh, to launch the initial inaugural list. Yes, I love the question mark on 2020. <laughs> I know it's like I blocked out the last year yeah that year like 2020 was that a year Mm, probably not you know I'm so glad that spunk is beginning to get out there you know between Mm. the reading we did with classical theater of Harlem and then roundabout theater company um also did a reading of spunk in their refocus project shout out but yeah shout out but it makes me hungry to see it on stage because I know so much is in the staging of this. I just remember when, when we first approached this play, it was like we were trying to contextualize it of like there are parts of it that feel like you when you go and see Oklahoma or Carousel or something of just the size and immersiveness of those productions and the magic of it. And I just am dying to see this on stage with the full cast and all the music and all the color and staging of it because it's going to be such an event. I love that. And I love that you even said immersive. Like, I want to see this on a traditional proscenium. And then I want to see this as an immersive piece oh of theater. Oh, my God. I, oh, that would be so good. Oh, wow. Okay, we're doing that. Someone is doing that. And I'm going to go and cry my eyes out. Yes, when you do that, when you do that play, when you produce it, please email us, info at hedgepagensemble.org. Let us know about it. We will take a van and (laughs) carpool out there, and we will also shout all about it on our social media and brag about how amazing this play is. It is worth noting, though, because there's some confusion. Okay, the title of this play can be really confusing because Zora Neale Hurston wrote a short story called Spunk, and it won a bunch of awards, and it is a brilliant short story with the same characters as this play but a very different ending and a very different tone i would not call spunk the short story as joyous as the play is and then to utterly confuse things more george c wolf 
adapted and created a play that he calls Spunk based on three of Zora Neale Hurston's short stories. However, Spunk is not one of those. So there's another play out there, very well-known play called Spunk that is an adaptation of her work. But she also wrote a freaking play called Spunk herself that is this play so in case there's any confusion about what spunk this is this is written by zora neale hurston based on her short story named spunk but somewhat different i gotta say what a power flex to be like i wrote this award-winning short story and now i'm going to adapt it into a full-length play because i can because i can and change it you know yeah i mean yeah in terms of like artistic growth that's always so exciting as things change mediums to see like what the original artist changes what they flush out more. It's very cool. If you're dreaming about a combination of the musical folklore of Hadestown and Oklahoma, Spunk is a theatrical event with music. An expansion of her well-loved short story, but with a more joyous ending, this play centers on the relationship between a married woman and a lovable wandering musician called Spunk. It is a humorous, moving portrait of a small-town Black community in the 1930s. Filled with music, magic, and folklore, Spunk manages to be epically theatrical whilst remaining grounded and endearingly quotidian. It is a love letter to small towns, the Black communities in the South, and the wanderers and romantics in us all. It feels like you're selling me like a resort vacation. (laughs) That's the that's the vibe I'm going for. <laughs> I love it. I would go. I would go to Eatonville, Florida for, for that pitch. Absolutely. So what is this play actually about? Like, what happens? What is it about? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's a love story, ultimately. So here's what we got. Evelina is in a relationship with that pretty mediocre dude until Spunk comes into town. Woohoo! Oh, man, he is a blues-playing, charismatic, super hottie, and all of the ladies are suddenly into him. You know, it's like that new guy in high school, and suddenly everyone's like, yeah, I had a boyfriend, but dunzo. So, Spunk tears Lena away from Jim. Aha, aha, that is actually his name, the mediocre guy from before. And when I say he tears away Lena, that's not even fair. He, like, basically has a conversation with her, and he is actually a nice guy, whereas Jim was not the greatest to her, truly. And, you know, he woos her over by playing some sweet, sweet music. You know, it works on college campuses everywhere, so great. And then Jim is like, whoa. I need to get revenge on Spunk for taking my lady. And he comes at Spunk with a knife. Unfortunately, Spunk brought a gun to this night fight. And he, yeah, he shoots Jim dead. It's, of course, in self-defense, though. You know, this guy, like, comes at you with a knife and you shoot him. Like, you are probably within your rights, I guess. And we should say, like, repeatedly it's said, like, Spunk is like, bro, don't come at me, don't start this. And everyone in the town is like, this is a bad de- idea. Do not attack this man with a- your knife. And Jim does it anyway. Yeah. So, you know, in some ways, I suppose he had it coming. So then Spunk is arrested. But get this. He's not arrested for killing Jim because the white folks don't care if a black man kills another black man. But he is arrested for owning a gun illegally. Oof. 
Oof. And he is then sent to work on a chain gang. So then we're out at the railroad. He's working on laying railroad ties or whatever you do to a railroad. <laughs> and uh, we, he gets a message that Evelina, she's just moved on. He's basically gone to prison slash chain gang and she has moved on with her life. And he is like, wait a second, I need to rectify this. So he runs away from the chain gang, basically daring people to shoot him if he goes. But he's a pretty well-loved person, so they're like, I'm going to let that human get away. And he confronts Evelina. And what's going on here is that Evelina has heard a rumor that Spunk was actually already married. <sighs> and she's like, no, no way, I'm not getting involved with a married guy so she is like no i'm done with him which like go girl knowing your boundaries yeah exactly um you know i don't know how rumors travel in this day but if it's on good authority then like good for her but spunk comes in and he's like hey i ran away from my sentence and i'm here to convince you that i am not in fact married you are my person like please don't do this great we're back together things are good However, he's now back in town, and Jim's dad, remember Jim, that mediocre dude that got himself shot? Jim's dad, get this name, Hodge Bishop, love it. <laughs> love his name, Hodge Bishop. He's out for revenge for his son's death, and he is a hoodoo practitioner. So everyone's pretty worried about this, that he's going to do some hoodoo and have something really, really tragic happen to Spunk. And there's a lot of conversation, like, up, oh, does that real? Does it actually work? Does Hodge actually have the power to, like, curse, spunk, what have you? We do get to see one of the most phenomenal things I've ever seen written <laughs> in a script, which is um, Hodge going through a very intense hoodoo ritual, which includes a chorus of dancing cats and unzipping and removing his skin in this ritual. Zora Neale Hurston does even note in the script, she's like, mm, this can't really be realized on the page, and it's up to a director to figure out basically how this is going to work. Again, I cannot wait to see this on stage because I am like, what? I'm not a director, so I'm just like, more kudos to the person that takes this on and makes this feel authentic. Yeah. Yes. Excited. But even though the skin has been unzipped, even though the cats have danced... Spunk remains safe and sound while it seems like Lena's hoodoo worked because Hodge Bishop ends up getting the brunt of all of this kind of hell that he has raised. Love wins in the end. Bad people get their comeuppance and Lena and Spunk live out their days. It is a wonderful play. It is a wild story. And we should say in the midst of all of this, there's just so many dances and mu like music parties and playing of croquet and cookouts. And it's just wonderful. Yeah. And that's like, you know, in a plot summary, it's like, sure, we these are what these like main characters do. But the real joy of this is what Sky's talking about. These like community scenes, mm -hmm. people coming together on the lawn, people coming together for these dances, barbecuing, what have you. That is what holds like the glory of this play. Absolutely. History. So, Zora Neale Hurston, we can't talk about this play without talking about this brilliant 
person. Sky, did you read Their Eyes Were Watching God in high school or some other time? I actually did. I've I've read a fair amount of Zora Neale Hurston because we read that book in high school and I got really into her. Oh, amazing. And I was, yeah, so I loved her from an early age. But I was very lucky because I don't think most people actually got to read her. Yeah, I, I think that the, the Their Eyes Were Watching God are on like a fair number of schools school reading list it wasn't on mine though so I was not familiar with Zora Neale Hurston until I was older but I think a lot of people first contact her with this particular novel yeah but there's like it's wild because yes that is probably her most famous work but she's done so much she's such a prolific writer of the Mm. Harlem Renaissance specifically and she's also an anthropologist and a filmmaker, so she basically does everything. Baller moves. Baller moves. Um, she was born in 1891, although that is a date that sometimes you'll see incorrectly listed, um, and we'll get into why. And she died in 1960, so she really saw that turn of the century and all of that Harlem Renaissance time. What an incredible and interesting time to be alive. So wild. She spent most of her childhood in Eatonville, Florida, which is like more of the deep south part of Florida, not really like the Miami Key Largo thing. And Mm. fascinatingly, that Eatonville, Florida is one of the first all-black towns incorporated in the United States. I did not know that. Isn't that cool? And so a lot of her writing is based there really that is where spunk is based and she really uses this space to explore the african-american experience so she grew up and she left eatonville to attend howard university where she began to study anthropology and her main part of study there was proving similarities between ethnicities She was then accepted to Barnard College right here in New York City, which is, you know, it's specifically in Harlem. So she's like walking herself right into the Harlem Renaissance. And she was the sole black student at that school. Yikes. Yikes. You know, we also talk about Rachel by Angelina Weld Grimke on this podcast. And she Mm -hmm. is another writer that is the only person of color at, I believe, Harvard at the time. So I didn't know that either. This is a pretty rich history of being very singular. So, okay, right before she moved to Harlem to go to Barnard, she wrote the short story that we've been talking about named Spunk. And so that is like coming right out of the Deep South experience that she's had. And once she kind of arrives in Harlem, she becomes friends with all of the great Harlem Renaissance writers. Uh, Langston Hughes being, you know, of course, the biggest name in there. What's that on the floor? You dropped a name there. Mm, There it is down there. Her buddy, Langston Hughes. You know, at this point, she's writing stories in the 20s. She's winning prizes for her plays, for her stories. People are noticing. However, have you ever worked on a project with a friend and maybe it didn't go great and maybe your friendship didn't survive I am lucky enough to not have been in that situation but I hear horror stories of when things go awry and your best friend is now fuming at you because they did not like a certain decision that happened in a production well that is kind of the story with her and Langston Hughes they collaborated on a play together they wrote Mule Bone which it's worth a read truly I think the second act is hilarious 
But it didn't go great for them, and that really marked their friendship falling apart. So, bummer. Big bummer. You know, and while she's not writing plays, she's also going on a ton of anthropological research trips. She's going down to, you know, the Deep South, spending time in Jamaica, Honduras, even Haiti. And all of these experiences, she's really documenting and using these as inspirations for her play and for her other writings as well. This is where, like, all of those folkloric elements that we've talked about sort of come into play in her writing. Exactly. She's, like, really documenting them. And, you know, it's incredible how many resources we have about this time period because of her work. Yeah, really. And what also is crazy is that someone who now, I think, is really revered as a tremendous writer, she died in relative obscurity. Didn't even have a headstone on her grave. It wasn't until Alice Walker decided to commission a headstone for her. And that read, Zora Neale Hurston, a genius of the South, novelist, folklorist, anthropologist, 1901 to 1960. Hmm. Huh. 1901. Turns out that um, to get some education benefits you had to be born in the 20th century so just occasionally Zora Neale Hurston would write down 1901 so she could get more education and that's why there's a discrepancy she was in fact born in 1891 but uh, occasionally would write that she was born in 1901 fun fact so after Hurston died her papers were actually ordered to be burned. She was very, you know, subversive at that time. Burned by, like, she ordered or? No, 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 no. Like, the state, I guess. Ooh. I, I do, I want more insight into this part of her life because it's really shocking to me. Um, you know, her work is so beautiful. I don't necessarily see it as deeply political, but at that time, it was subversive enough that folks ordered it to be burned. The state, if you will. And she had a friend who was a law officer who happened to be walking by her house and saw the fire and put out the fire and saved all this incredible material that otherwise would have been lost. Yeah. Wow. I know. I know. And, you know, over time, Hurston has really come in and out of popularity. For a chunk there, these very distinctive dialogues that she wrote, because, you know, she did so much research and so much listening and so much recording was seen for a while as upholding more of a white supremacist tradition and not really helpful to the progress for black folks in the United States. But more recently, her work has really been praised for the accuracy, for recording this language, for the beautiful idioms, and really celebrating this language. And I'm just so glad that we're at a place now where that can be held in esteem, because it's truly how she writes is lyrical, it is beautiful, it is poetic, and... It's accurate, which is so cool. Mm -hmm. So there we are. There's so much more to say about her because she's just so prolific. But I mean, those are the kind of the some fun spots. She's so fascinating. She's such a smart and accomplished and just interesting and creative woman. Her just the breadth of knowledge she must have had is extraordinary. Absolutely. Legacy. And here we have a scene from Spunk. The scene is between Evelina and Spunk. We have Sam Kylie reading for Spunk here and Shannon Corenthin, you know her, you love her from this podcast, reading Evelina. 
Spunk is, as we know, a romantic, charming, and gregarious wandering musician new to town. Evelina is a beautiful, honest, and confident woman. Uh, she's currently in a relationship with a really well-respected person in the town, and Spunk and Evelina have just met for the very first time in this scene. And despite the fact that Evelina is in a relationship, it's a real love and first sight situation. The rest of the town is having a party around them, and the two of them sneak off together to have a boat ride. Miss Lena, would you do me a favor and step over to the refresh stand and choose your brothers on me? Much obliged, Mr. Spunk. And my mouth is a little parched from all this dancing. I'll choose some lemonade. Whilst we're so hard from dancing, we ought to try one of them boat rides. I loves to pull a boat. <laughs> them boats is full of leaks. Admiral ain't fooling nobody on his boat rides. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyhow, we can get one of them and sit down, can us? Mm-hmm, I reckon. Must I shove off, Miss Lena? We better not get out into deep water, Mr. Spunk. It's dangerous in the dark, too. Nothing can't be dangerous when you're with me. I can swim real good. I, I could take the Mississippi River for a dusty road if I had to. I'd love to be out on that lake. We better not, though. Not out on the water. Let us just sit in the boat. Whatever you say, Miss Evelina. But I done found out it ain't no use in being scared of things. If you feel a thing, do it. You can't die, but on time, no how. I got a song made up in me for you. For me? You must have made it up awful quick. This is the first time you ever seen me. It don't seem that way. Seem like I always been knowing you. When I seen you come walking in just now, it seemed like you had been off somewhere and just got back home. You don't seem strange to me neither. Look like I've been knowing you too. And that's a nice feeling. I don't like feeling strong around people, and that's the way I've been. I know how that is, by my own self. That's how come I already got a song made up. But anyhow, it ain't hard for me to make up songs. If I get to feeling real strong inside, a song makes itself up, and all I have to do is sing it. Like this one I'm going to sing right now. I'll be glad. Your compliments is nice. Great. Thanks so much to Sam and Shannon for doing that great read. Thank you for joining us for our spunk edition of This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon podcast. Please go learn more at expandthecanon.com. And for info on what's up next, you can follow us on Instagram at Hedgepig Ensemble Theater, Facebook slash Hedgepig Ensemble Theater, or join our mailing list at hedgepigensemble.org. You can also support this effort by donation at the link in the comments below bit.ly slash hedgepig memberships. Again, I'm Mary Candler. And I'm Sky Pagan. Farewell. Goodbye. Goodbyes. <laughs> you gotta stop talking like that. <laughs> <laughs>